The cultural impact of AIDS is immeasurable. Since the 1980s, countless artists and writers have been lost to this epidemic. On the evening of April 22, 2010, cultural programs of the National Academy of Sciences hosted a poetry reading and panel to discuss the cultural loss due to AIDS. The evening was inspired by the recently published anthology of poetry entitled Persistent Voices, Poetry by Writers Lost to AIDS. The book's co-editor, Philip Clark, facilitated the reading and discussion panel. Philip was joined by local poets Bernard Welt, E. Ethelbert Miller, and Tina Dara. In addition to these writers, the panel also included Michael Sapel, medical historian at the National Library of Medicine, and Raymond Martins, chief medical officer of the Whitman Walker Clinic. Philip Clark begins the discussion. Be reading two poems on the evening. The first is by a poet named Charles Barber. Uh, Barber, uh, when he was young, was said to be so beautiful that he could not walk down the streets of New York City uh, without being stopped and approached by, by many, many men. Um, and I'd like to thank, uh, while we're here, uh, Charles's mother, Kathleen, who gave permission to print his poems in the book. But the first poem on the evening is going to be Charles Barber's 13 Things About a Catheter. White tube in cephalic vein to the right atrium of the heart, see illustration, access. A cuff made of dacron serves as a barrier to infections tunneled under the skin. Daily, I tend its bud, swabbing away the dust, the slugs of dirt that in the night advance. The nurse is called Bud Two, a gay man, but grumpy, won't use my towels, asks, don't you have paper? A fish hung from the pole, striped with words of caution, to expire in 91, like me? The bag, bloated with drug, takes the hook at line's end. Hopeful and still, I reel it in, dripping. Detached or pulled apart, silently blood spurts out. I stare at it uncaringly, unmoved. Or sex, a white t-shirt discreetly veils the thing between us while locked together. It hurts. Bandaged, walking wounded, the cap beneath my shirt signals to other veterans. Soldier. A kite flapping skyward, dreaming only of the ground, while dirty hands keep the string tight, tired. Or mom, with aging son, feeds from her third nipple, thinks, please, won't you go away soon, dear one? The dream, finally well, over me lies his arm, the hole in my chest, a lip smudge, stamped, sealed. Grotesque, life-supporting, deforming and healing, not a cure, insistent I be, life-like. Of the 45 poets who are in Persistent Voices, the only one who I could say I knew personally was Reginald Shepard. 
Uh, Reginald had gotten in touch when he heard that I was editing Persistent Voices. He was very concerned. He wanted to know, are you including Donald Britton? Uh, another poet who is in Persistent Voices. I was happy uh, to be able to tell Reginald, who really revered Donald's work, I was uh, happy to be able to tell him uh, that we were including Donald Britton. Uh, and I was saddened and, and shocked uh, when I came home one day and, and found out online uh, that Reginald himself had died. Uh, the official cause of death was colon cancer, but it was made particularly aggressive by his uh, long fight with HIV disease. Uh, so the poem I read tonight, this is for you, Reginald, uh, it's called Antibody. I've heard that blood will always tell. Tell me then, antigen. Declining white cell count answer. Who wouldn't die for beauty if he could? Microbe of mine, you don't have me in mind. The man fan dancing from 1978 hits me with a feather's edge across the face ghost of a kiss. It burned. Men who have paid their brilliant bodies for soul's desire a night or hour, 15 minutes of skin brushed against bright skin, burnt down to smoke and cinders, shaken over backyard gardens, charred bone bits sieved out over water. The flat earth loves them, even contaminated turned over for no one's spring. Iris and gentian spring up like blue flames, discard those parts more perishable, lips, penises, testicles, a lick of semen on the tongue, and other things in the vicinity of sex. Up and down the sidewalk stroll local gods, see also saunter, promenade, parade of possibilities at play, Sunday afternoons before tea dance, off-white evenings kneeling at public urinals, consumed by what confuses, consuming it too. Time in its burn is any life, those hours, afternoons, buildings smudged with soot and city residues. Later they take your blood that tells secrets it doesn't know. Bodies can refuse their being such, rushing into someone's wish not to be. My babbling blood. What's left of burning burns as well, me down to blackened glass, an offering in anthracite, the darkest glitter smoldering underground until it consumes the earth, which loves me anyway, I am sure. Our next poet on the evening is uh, Tina Dara. Tina is a DC poet. Two recent works that are freely available online are Deep Echo Prey, a collaboration with poet Marcella Durand, available from Little Red Leaves, and Opposable Dumbs, a meditation on animal rights. Her essay, Blame Global Warming on Thoreau, is included in the recently released Echo Language Reader from Nightboat Books and Portable Press. And uh, Dara works as a librarian at Georgetown University. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, Tina Dara. Well, uh, the, the selections that I chose uh, uh, came from um, uh, my, uh, my love, really, of, the, first of all, the title of the book, Persistent Voices, because I read the, I read the poems as, as coming um, after the, the 70s, where um, 
at the beginning we had the uh, the advocacy um, and the civil rights movement and the anti-war movement and as the uh, decade wore on uh, the discourse was more and more focused on the right to die the right to live um, these uh, all about bodies that had no voices um, and then we had, uh, you know, the AIDS epidemic and the return of uh, voices to um, health care and to um, advocacy for health care. So I chose uh, four different um, poems that deal with, um, in addition to the experience of having AIDS, also the vulnerability of language, um, the, the necessity for language, and also uh, the necessity for silence um, that is defined by by them and not somebody else. The first is going to be Donald Britton, um, who Philip mentioned uh, just before when he, when he talked. Notes on the articulation of time. It becomes a critical account of all that's spoken, done, the drawing in of breaths, even these nights whose atmosphere reminds us of mountains, white volumes of air. We need these narratives. We want them. The city lies before us, and some one person in the sleeve of a street lamp awaits our enraptured intention as we await the concept of the city, which tells us how we move in the party-colored geographies about us. We can't be certain we are moving toward this person, nor do we require certitude. It is enough to acknowledge the movement itself, shavings of light inscribing a circle, our childlike sense of the other, bears these forces toward completion and renewal, a lexus of infatuated sounds. And this is um, Immigrant in My Own Life by Tori Dent, who was um, a Renaissance person, an art critic, an essayist, and in addition to poet. Broken dreams hovering like the shadow of a branch, how I wonder, do I begin again? With resistance, I read back over my old poems, trying to understand what it is that has been. How, I wonder, do I begin again? Nothing looks familiar, no matter where I look, trying to understand what it is that has been. Foreign sky, foreign street, foreign trees with their foreign leaves. Nothing looks familiar, no matter where I look. I don't know my name when I am without disease. Foreign sky, foreign street, foreign trees with their foreign leaves, foreign tears my eyes won't make for me. I don't know my name when I am without disease. Help me remember, help me imagine, or just desire again. Foreign tears my eyes won't always me for make. <laughs> Come back to me, whoever, wherever you've been. Help me remember, help me imagine, or just desire again. For 17 years I've waited like a soldier's wife for something. Come back to me, whoever, wherever you've been. For 17 years I've said I won't live another year. For 17 years I've waited like a soldier's wife for something. I guess. It'll take some time to get reacquainted. For 17 years, I've said I won't live another year. I experienced the actual breaking down, mud and twigs underfoot. I guess it'll take some time to get reacquainted. At least when I was dying, I knew where I was going. I experienced the actual breaking down, mud and twigs underfoot, almost out of ash. My body reconfigures itself. At least when I was dying, I knew where I was going into atheistic air and dirt, into the Atlantic Ocean. Almost out of ash, my body reconfigures itself as if a reclining nude, I stare dumbfounded at my flesh. Into atheistic dirt and air, into the Atlantic Ocean, peace became associated with that essential vanishing point. 
As if a reclining nude, I stare, dumbfounded at my flesh, now to associate peace with something else, such as myself, for instance. Peace became associated with that essential vanishing point. Peace used to mean simply a piece, a sheet of paper and a pencil. Now to associate peace with something else, such as myself, for instance, myself as once I came to know myself, both future tense and past. Peace used to mean simply a sheet of paper and a pencil. With resistance, I read back over my old poems, myself as, as once I came to know myself, both future tense and past, broken dreams hovering like a shadow of a branch. And then J.M. Reagan um, in the confessional, J.M. Um, was another local poet uh, for part of his um, uh, uh, life. He uh, attended Georgetown University and lived, lived here in D.C. At my first town meeting on the bare and veiled receiving ward where I sat shouting at the uncaring wall, rape, kill, die, the other, other inmates cowered the way I cringe from flowers and the blue sky. Then they all thanked me for sharing. That visiting hour I woke up and saw, like waking to a nightmare, my hour of my death mother, beacon feather, hawk's eye, blood claw. This was no, no dream was made on. I screamed and ran. My dreams are full of flash and fire and thrashing love with pricks thick as my neck. They balloon and enter like the body of the lake, finally ballooned into my millstone father. For breakfast I eat Thorazine, Magnetic Thorazine, my head and torso twisted, twisted toward the east, as though in quest of and force, like the morning glory, to shrivel at the first light. Ellaville was helpful, too. I never got bored. When I'd open my book, each word untwirled from the sentences. I'd watch them twinkle into the distances, lyrical as birds of happiness. Neither did I miss my libido. I'd unload on my doctor. She was cold, controlled, and spoke in codes like a computer. She dismissed all my trespasses, sins vicious as tetrapods. For my penance, I'd agree to eat supper. And once my soul snapped shut as the jaws on the lioness, my brain soon grew sane as God. Freed of grief and old leafages, my two feet rerooted, my fired, oh, orange, wings burned to ashes. Now I'm steady as iron in my deaf-mute, aloof cocoon. I am the dead. Nothing, however, shall be left unsaid. And then the final thing I'll read is um, from Richard Ronan, who is, uh, you know, another uh, Renaissance person. He directed a school for special ed kids and was in theater and directed plays and um, in addition to <coughs> writing poetry. Love Among Lepers. First, for kindness, we must assume the dark. It is not right to see this, not outright, perhaps not even inwardly, Things often wound the eye and remain like picks of glass, wounded again, tearing again through the recent scabbing of the things seen and seen again, a red dreaming recurring, darkness then, and in it, wordlessness. Let us be strict in this, for we can never know our partner's um, latest turn of unhealth, as he has, since last loved, lost a lip, and is now imperfect if any answer, even in our softest sweet word, no kinder not to speak at all, even if we still can. Besides, what is there to say? What framing, what bodying forth in speech can you or I give this slow process, the gradual cessation of systems, pieces and pieces feeling in the loving arm of forgetting themselves by bits and losing the long-assumed narration that has kept it in its shape and in its kind of sentence so long, the, the corrosion of vessels of 
living nerve confused as if with ash, ash of a forest burned black upstream, one that leapt carbonized and howling into the cooling blood? How could we ask with any tenderness after the damage upriver, the cellular losses, the soldiery in the blackened sloth, the muck driving down from the um, minute frontiers of wilderness, from the high stairway, from the pith of the heart, flowing from trickles to lava runs, a nutrient stew, poison now, alpha gone, all omega, the horror we must watch even in darkness and await. No, the etiquette, though broken so often with sobbing, must be silence. At least we must not speak. Any word can run mad with itself and with the visceration of itself. And there is no word for living through this. There is no word for witnessing our beloved fail piecemeal. No word to speak the itch inside the fingers to be off. Candle wax thinning to the bone wick. No word conveying this centered toward a more and more essential, which is itself essential to nothing and no one but ourselves in useless love in unsupporting darkness, tongues numb and as slow as sick dogs, darkness in the room, darkness in the mind, the heart and spirit, the clean table, the finger like a glass pen drawing us in contours of light, eyes, yours, skin, your skin, misted as if by the spray of luminous surf, salty and damp as sweat, your abrupt vigor, the shudders and jolts from where you sat once upon me in real dizzy into selflessness, I see it with the darkened eye and touch you, still whole enough to read you, to have always read you, and beyond you, and through you, into you, and into that which was divine, that to which you gave flesh, this radiance that cannot still our pain. Is there still this in the life-worn husks we've weathered into? Remnants of it, numbering of our deep and volatile love, some fossil of a phoenix to redeem what has come to be with what has been once been. Oh, what a wet planet we were, made half of great fire and how we descended the stairs, mountains melting into slag-laden fumes, iron poured on the hot sea, the sea boiling off into a brief power of thunderheads, spewing a molten rain onto nothing remaining but this, remembered passion, the distant passion. We are the things of such things that see nothing in our pain. Here, we've forgotten again our meager import pulse toward love. We fall onto softened shoulders. You sob. I am too tired to weep. We lose the thought of what we meant to do together. Beloved, I love you and there is no God. Oh, I love you and there is no hope. Look how we are still so hungry for each other and still we will not live. The linens clenched in your white fists as you sit up dark, a felt shape that I cannot see and you are sounding a long, sharp in the throat, far off, as if far off, the knife cutting another pound, another God-hating, faith-rotten day of gristle and ash. And then it is me, again, and I see the bloodless, open mouth loss of you, again. And again I close your imperfect eyes, because again, they are left half open and no one to stare through them. Again, the autumn sunlight outside in your face, no longer yours. Or what was it I was? Where is he I loved? The wind, the sun, the wind, <clears throat> and tell me again, why is it we live to see such as this again? Our next reader on the evening is E. Ethelbert Miller. E. Ethelbert Miller is a literary activist. 
He was the board chairperson of the Institute for Policy Studies. He's also a board member of the Writers' Center and editor of Poet Lore magazine. Since 1974, he has been the director of the African American Resource Center at Howard University. Mr. Miller is the former chair of the Humanities Council of Washington, D.C., and a former core faculty member of the Bennington Writing Seminars at Bennington College. I might add that he's also an extremely well-published poet and uh, the literary executor for Chase and Gaber, one of the poets and persistent voices. This is uh, E. Ethelbert Miller. This anthology is one that I would encourage everyone to read from the back first. Um, and that is to read the bio notes. And I think if you read the bio notes very carefully, you see that everyone seemed to depart around the same time, like someone sucked the air out of the room. And that was one of the things I found very interesting in terms of all these deaths occurring around the same time. And these are the voices that published. I, I think of other voices here in Washington, D.C., who just sort of disappeared. Um, someone like Garth Tate, for example. Um, a number of poets who are not in this book, some were doing performance work, so like Chasen, um, and not documenting the work on the page. So this anthology is very, very important. I knew quite a number of people in this book. Uh, and one was Melvin Dixon. And I'll call Melvin Dixon a genius child. Um, and when we talk about what people could have done if they had not died young, I look at Melvin Dixon. I think the last time I saw him, he was here in Washington. I think he was applying to be chair of the English department at Howard University. And I thought to myself just the other day, I wonder what would have happened to Howard's English department if Melvin Dixon had been chair. Hmm. Um, <laughs> think about that. Then also, I, I think about these writers who are um, not just poets, not just fiction writers. But Melvin Dixon was a translator. You read his bio, no, he translates Leopold Senghor very important um, writer in terms of the uh, Negritude poets, Sancerre, Damas, Senghor. And you know if you read Senghor's work, uh, beautiful work, probably very, very difficult to translate. It's very surreal. And here's Melvin Dixon, you know, giving me the complete Lebo Senghor's work. And I say that in terms of, of, of the genius that is lost. And this is his poem called Heartbeats. Work out. Ten laps, chins up, look good. Steam room, dress warm, call home, fresh air. Eat right, rest well, sweetheart, safe sex. So a throat, long flu, hard nose, beware. Test blood, count cells, reds, thin, whites, low. Dress warm, eat well, short breath, fatigue, night sweats, dry cough, loose stools, weight loss. Get mad, fight back, call home. Rest well, don't cry, take charge, no sex, eat right, call home, 
Tall. Slow. Chin up. No air. Arms wide. Nose hard. Cough dry. Hold on. Mouth wide. Drink this. Breathe in. Breathe out. No air. Breathe in. Breathe in. No air. Blackout. White rooms. Head, hot, feet, cold. No work. Eat right. Cat scan. Chin up. Breathe in. Breathe out. No air. Thin blood. Sore lungs. Mouth dry. Mind gone. Six months. Three weeks. Can't eat. No air. Today. Tonight. It waits for me. Sweetheart, don't stop. Breathe in, breathe out. Poetry by Melvin Dixon. Um, I always like to select <laughs> select um, poems by, by poets I, I did know. Um, and so I thought about it. I was going to read maybe something by Essex Hemphill or even my Chasen, but I, I didn't know Jim Everhart lived here in Washington. And the beauty of, of anthologies is that you, if, it, if the anthology works well, um, yet it does their job, um, then what happens? You discover writers. You discover poems that become part of, of your anthology, become part of, of, of the work that you want to share with others. At the same time with anthologies like this, it means that you give ear back to someone who, who, who's left. You keep their memory and their work alive. Uh, and that's what poetry should do. Uh, this is called The Mystical Life. And this is by Jim Everhart. There comes a day when all of us disappear as completely as the mystic with his rope trick. Let me read that again. I like that. <laughs> there comes a day when all of us disappear as completely as the mystic with his rope trick. Some of us climb old sheets. Some climb the wind. No matter how we get there, we all end up in the same place. We are more rootless than life seems, except in the all. Even the tiny fly carries part of us into the sky. We rub off on the rose bush. We drape across the grass. We cross that bridge before we get to it. You may think you know where you're going, at least which alternatives you have, but you don't. When you die, you will lose your will. Being a mystic means accepting what it is like to be dead before you are dead, but with your will. Embrace the mystical life. Pray for the ability to no longer ask for anything. Volunteer poverty. Eat soup from a pot that stays on a fire of eternal flames. A soup poor in substance, yet rich and warm. Thank you.
Next reader on the evening is Bernard Welt. Bernard Welt is Professor of Arts and Humanities at the Corcoran College of Art and Design in Washington, D.C., where he teaches interdisciplinary humanities courses and film studies. And he's the author of Mythomania, Fantasies, Fables, and Sheer Lies in Contemporary American Popular Art, in which he reprinted Persistent Voices poet Donald Britton's essay, The Dark Side of Disneyland, as a tribute to his closest friend. As a poet, he may be best known for his participation in the DC poetry scene in the 1980s, especially the Mass Transit Reading Series, where he met and collaborated with Terence Winch, Michael Lally, Doug Lang, Tina Dara, P. Inman, Beth Josselow, Diane Ward, Ed Cox, and persistent voices poets Tim Dugos and Jim Everhard. In I Stopped Writing Poetry, which appeared in the Best American Poetry 2001, he tried to explain the effect of the AIDS crisis on his writing. Ladies and gentlemen, Bernard Welt. Thanks. I'm, uh, 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 this is going to be a little bit weird, but follow me on this, because <clears throat> we're going to talk a little bit later, but there was a couple of things I wanted to say before reading Tim Dugas's poetry. I was thinking of a session of the Modern Language Association. I used to go to Modern Language Association meetings sometimes and attend the poetry sessions. <clears throat> and uh, it was a session on Ezra Pound, I remember, and Charles Bernstein had spoken. And, you know, everyone was being very theoretical and all. And this one person got up and had the nerve, the courage to say, so are you saying that the poem has no fixed meaning, that somebody's going to come along in five years and they're going to have another way of looking at this poem, and somebody else is going to come along and there's going to be another way of looking at this poem, and the poem is never going to mean this one thing. And Charles was like, yeah, that goes without saying. And the guy was like, oh, I don't like that. I don't like that at all. You know, I want the poem to mean something and stay that way. Like the movie, you come out of it, you know what it was about, that's it. So, you know, I was thinking about the fact that we... Um, associate the impact of AIDS on culture, on poetry, et cetera, primarily with, with loss. Uh, and loss is very important, and I'm sure it's something we're going to be talking about, the impact of, uh, I, for me, I think of it particularly in terms of the impact on particular communities at a time in which art was becoming identified, especially with uh, communities identifying themselves and identifying themselves in relation with each other and AIDS having an impact on their collaborations and their communications with each other. You know, which is all stuff I remember because I'm incredibly old from the, you know, going on in the 70s and 80s. But I'm also thinking about things beyond the issues uh, of loss. And this is one of the reasons why Tim Dugas's poetry seems to me so destined to survive for a very long time and always draw people's interest because when you read his work now, it's as if, you know, with Keats, you know, or somebody everything that ever happened in his life was always going to happen. And you read the whole thing and you reread it and it means something different the next time. And you reread it with another sense of it the next time. And part of it is, you know, I hate to be like the English teacher about it, it's his poetics. It's the way he put the poem together so that he forced you to notice something different each time uh, you read it. So I'm going to try to read it a little bit in that spirit and Forget everything I thought about these poems before and just discover them for the first time. But, you know, 
I'm inclined to reminisce. Donald Britton was my best friend for 20 years. I remember sitting in DuPont Circle talking with Jim Everhard about the guys walking by. I was half in love with Joe Brainerd, but then I found out everybody else was too because he was like the most crushed on guy in New York. And of course, Tim Dugas was an inspiration for me from very early on uh, when we met at Mass Transit. So these poems come from late in his career. There is a book called Powerless, uh, the title of which testifies to his very deep commitment to 12-step programs and how they changed his life. But I'm happy to say that a collected uh, poems of Tim Dugas will be coming out, I think, next year under the extremely energetic editorship of David Trinidad, <clears throat> who uh, also edited this collection. This is Tim's poem, Pretty Convincing. Talking to my friend Emily, whose drinking patterns and extravagance of personal feeling are a lot like mine, I'm pretty convinced when she explains the things we do while drinking, a cocktail to celebrate the new account turns into a party that lasts until 3 a.m. and a terrific hangover, indicate a problem of a sort I'd not considered. I've been worried about how I metabolized the sauce for four years since my second bout of hepatitis when I kissed all the girls at Christmas dinner and turned bright yellow Christmas night, but never about whether I could handle it. It's been more of a given, the stage set for my life as an artistic queer, as much of a tradition in these New York circles as incense for Catholics or German shepherds for the blind. We reenact the rituals and our faces like smoky icons in a certain light seem to learn nothing but understand all. It comforts me, yet isn't all that pleasant, like drinking Ripple to remember high school. A friend of mine has been drinking in the same bar for decades, talking to the same types, but progressively fewer blondes. Joe Lesure says he's glad to have been a young man in the 50s with his tab hunter good looks, because that was the image men desired. Now it's the Puerto Rican angel with great eyes and a fierce fidelity that springs out of machismo rather than a moral choice. His argument is pretty convincing, too, except lots of the pretty blondes I've known default by dying young leaving the field to the swarthy. Cameron Burke, the dancer and waiter at Magoo's, killed on his way home from the Pines when a car hit his bike on Sunrise Highway. Henry Post, dead of AIDS, a man I thought would be around forever, surprising me by his mortality, the way I was surprised when I heard he was not the grandson of Emily Post at all, just pretending, like the friend he wrote about in Playgirl, Blair Meehan, was faking when he crashed every A-list party for a year by pretending to be Kay Meehan's son, a masquerade that ended when a hostess told him, your mother's here, <laughs> and led him by the hand to the dowager, woman, behold thy son, underneath a darkening conviction that all, if not wrong, was not right. By now, Henry may have faced the same embarrassment at some cocktail party in the sky, Stay outrageously nasty as you were. And Patrick Mack locked into my memory as he held court in the anvil by the downstairs pinball machine and writhing as he danced in Lita Hornick's parlor when the stimulators played her party, dead last week of causes I don't know, as if the cause and not the effect were the problem. My blonde friend Chuck Shaw refers to the bone crusher in the sky, and I'm starting to imagine a road to his castle lit by radiant heads of blondes on poles as street lamps for the gods, flickering on at twilight, as I used to do, in the years when I crashed more parties and acted more outrageously and met more beauties and made more enemies than ever before or ever again, I pray. 
It's spring, and there's another crop of kids with haircuts from my childhood and inflated self-esteem from my arrival in New York who plug into the history of prettiness, convincing to themselves and the devout. We, who are about to catch the eye of someone new, salute as the cotillion passes, led by blondes and followed by the rest of us, a formal march to the dark edge of the ballroom where we step out onto the terrace and the buds on the forsythia that hides the trash sprout magically at our approach. I toast it as memorial to dreams as fragile and persistent as a blonde in love. My clothes smell like the smoky bar, but the sweetness of the April air is delicious. When I step outside and fill my lungs, leaning my head back in a first-class seat on the shuttle between the rowdy celebration of great deeds to come and an enormous Irish wake in which the corpses change, but the party goes on forever. I will get to talk about the, um, I don't know what to call them, issues and some art associated with AIDS, I think, but, uh, you know, there is that peculiar thing of so many artists having written elegies for their friends, which turn out to be their own elegies, so that, uh, you know, as in the other periods in the past, uh, this redefinition of the relationship to mortality uh, comes out of art. And here's a good example of it, too, in Tim's uh, work, the other poem I want to read, called D.O.A., titled after uh, the film with Edmund O'Brien, if you know it, great film noir, uh, classic, definitive uh, film noir, which he quotes from here. And it, it was very much a figure of Tim's work to quote from popular culture, especially movies. Uh, it was the case when we first met in about 1973, and uh, it remained a major issue in his work till the end. <clears throat> so here he is uh, identifying with Edmund O'Brien in DOA. You knew who I was when I walked in the door. You thought I was dead. Well, I am dead. A man can walk and talk and even breathe and still be dead. Edmund O'Brien is perspiring and chewing up the scenery in my favorite film noir, DOA. I can't stop watching, can't stop relating. When I walked down Columbus to Endicott last night to pick up Tor's new novel, I felt the eyes of every Puerto Rican teen, crackhead, yuppie couple focus on my cane and makeup. You're dead, they seem to say in chorus. Somewhere in a dark bar years ago, I picked up luminous poisoning. My eyes glowed as I sipped my drink. After that, there was no cure, no turning back. I had to find out what was gnawing at my gut. The hardest parts, not even the physical effects, stumbling like a drunk. Edmund O'Brien was one of Hollywood's most active lushes. Through 40 sets, alternating sweats and fevers, reptilian spots on face and scalp. It's having to say goodbye, like the scene where soundtrack violins go crazy as O'Brien gives his last embrace to his girlfriend come Girl Friday, Paula, played by Pamela Britton. They're filmdom's least likely lovers, the squat and jowly Alki, and the homely, fundamentally talentless actress who would hit the height of her fame as the pillhead acting landlady on my favorite Martian 15 years in the future. I don't have 15 years, and neither does Edmund O'Brien. He has just enough time to tell Paula how much he loves her, then to drive off in a convertible for the showdown with his killer. I'd like to have a showdown, too, if I could figure out which pistol-packing brilliant teen and ruthless villain in a houndstooth overcoat took my life. Lust, addiction, being in the wrong place at the wrong time, 
that's not the whole story. Absolute fidelity to the truth of what I felt, open to the moment, and in every case a kind of love. All of the above brought me to this tottering self-conscious state. Pneumonia, emaciation, grisly cancer, no future, heart of gold, passionate engagement with a great B-film, glorious summer afternoon in which to pick up the ripest plum tomatoes of the year and prosciutto for the feast I'll cook tonight for the man I love, phone calls from my friends and a walk to the park, ignoring stairs to clear my head, a day like any, like no other, not so bad for the dead. In addition to poets, we're uh, joined by a medical doctor this evening. Uh, Raymond Martins, an openly gay physician, joined Whitman Walker Clinic in February 2008 as chief medical officer. Martins completed medical school at the George Washington University and remained at GW for residency in internal medicine and primary care. After completing a chief residency, Martins practiced HIV and general internal medicine to a predominantly lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender, LGBT clientele in the Washington, D.C. area before coming to Whitman Walker. Martins is an assistant clinical professor of medicine at the George Washington University and remains active in teaching HIV primary care and LGBT health at the local universities. Thank you very much for joining us, Dr. Martins. Well, thank you for, for having me. I'm going to talk mainly on kind of my perspective um, regarding HIV and kind of how it's affected culture and, and myself personally as well. So, I mean, as we've, as we've heard tonight and from what we've seen, HIV has devastated many communities. Um, and although HIV does not discriminate when it infects individuals, there's um, certain communities that seem to be disproportionately affected um, from HIV. Um, early on here in the United States, that was mainly the gay male and um, hemophiliac communities. Um, and as we heard from the poetry readings, there's such a profound sense of, of loss at that time, and to me, kind of like a loss of, of potential. Um, I can most relate to this loss, actually, when I talk to my patients who are um, HIV long-term non-progressors. And uh, long-term non-progressors are, um, they're actually quite rare, and they're, they're lucky in, in, in some ways. They acquire HIV, but their own immune system controls the virus themselves. Um, they will likely never need medications, and they will always be, um, be well. On, on a side note, I think they're actually, by studying them, is one of our real true potentials for a cure for HIV. Um, but when you talk to those patients, as they've been doing well throughout the years, they've watched their entire social circles die around them. Um, and they had this profound sense of survivor's guilt. Well, HIV is, is different nowadays. And nowadays, we have a lot more weapons in the fight against HIV and, and highly active antiretroviral medications. Um, but um, unfortunately, HIV has changed at the same time. And, and Washington, D.C. is a good example of this. Um, so throughout the United States, um, from, from the beginning, men who have sex with men was the largest group of people who were infected with, uh, with HIV as, as far as new infections. Um, D.C. is a unique city, as we're the only city where heterosexual transmission is a predominant mode of transmission for new infections, followed by men who have sex with men. Um, at Women Walker, this caused a little bit of a cultural clash um, at first, because so, as we were seeing more heterosexual patients, our, our gay male patients were, were wondering if we were kind of like pulling away from them. 
And then on the flip side are these new heterosexual and primarily African-American patients had a difficult time initially coming to a historic LGBT um, HIV center. I'm happy to say actually at Women Walker though that both communities are doing really well and I really think kind of the strength of our clinic is the diversity of the patients um, that we serve there. Um, but to me, this isn't the largest cultural war um, uh, in regards to HIV. Yes, we do have effective medications for when someone's infected with HIV, but to me, really, the biggest issue is now is how do we effectively do HIV prevention when people are living longer with HIV? Um, and so everywhere you look, people are living longer, and Magic Johnson is a perfect example of this. Um, in addition, we're bombarded with pharmaceutical ads, even in our, our DC metro system, that show you know um, one pill once a day, and you have someone who looks very happy and carefree, you know, as part of the the ad. Um, for some people, it is as easy as one pill once a day, but even in the best circumstances, this is a lifetime of daily medication and regular blood you know blood visits and visits to the doctor's office. Um, and for a lot of patients, it's not that easy, and it means multiple medications multiple times a day with considerable side effects. So to me, again, the, the big cultural dilemma now is how do we effectively do HIV prevention now that everyone's living longer? And I, I don't know the answer. I don't know if it's focusing more on uh, behavioral change, um, if it's you know focusing toward a vaccine or some other medical method. Um, but one thing I do know is I, I am hopeful for the future, and one of the main reasons I am hopeful is I feel like everything I'm doing personally now, and I feel like the clinic is doing, is in remembrance and respect of all the people that died earlier from HIV. So, Thank you. Uh, also with us is uh, the gentleman to my left, uh, Mike Saple. Uh, Mike Saple is curator historian of the National Library of Medicine, National Institutes of Health in Bethesda, Maryland and the author of A Traffic of Dead Bodies, Anatomy and Embodied Social Identity in 19th Century America, from Princeton University Press, and Dream Anatomy, from GPO. He received a PhD in history from Columbia University in 1997. In 2008, he curated An Iconography of Contagion, an exhibition of 20th century health posters at the National Academy of Sciences, and was fellow in residence at the Clark Art Institute. His latest exhibition, Rewriting the Book of Nature, on Charles Darwin and the Rise of Evolutionary Theory, curated with Paul Thierman, ran through January 2010 at the National Library of Medicine. Staples' current work focuses on visual culture, 20th century modernist medical illustration and displays, and the history of medical film. And this is Mike Staple. I am a historian because I can't cope with the present, and thinking about all of those, I mean, I'm a historian of death and did all that work, which I'm not going to even make reference to again in this discussion, but, um, and thinking about all this, of course, takes me back, and, uh, and I think one of the, uh, the poets, Donald Britton, wrote both future tense and past, and so I'm going to go back to uh, my past-present, uh, uh, just give a little memoir, because before I was a historian, I had a, another life, and uh, in 1971 or so, I was in my late teens and had dropped out of college and moved to Washington, D.C., got a job at a bookstore in Georgetown and met 
P. Inman and Tina Dara and Doug Lang, who's sitting in the front row, and Bernie Welt, uh, all of them stalwarts of the DC poetry scene, and met and read and listened to Tim Dugos, and got a cram course in modernist prose and poetry, and also something that we could uh, retrospectively categorize as some kind of smart aleck postmodernism. Uh, and about a year after about a year in DC, I moved to Manhattan. I knew I wanted to write some kind of indecipherable, unintelligible, proto-punk, experimental writing. Uh, New York City was the center of that. Uh, and the most accessible scene was the St. Mark's Poetry Project, which I did enter and got to meet and pal around with many writers, some of whom are anthologized in persistent voices. It was a very exciting time to be in New York, which was on fire and crime-ridden and corrupt, a place that inconceivably now was cheap to live in uh, and cheap to die in. Uh, I lived in an apartment uh, in a shabby tenement in the East Village with no lock on the entrance on the front door, cost $85 a month. Uh, everyone living there had either been robbed or beaten or raped or was going to be. And uh, we all had big bars on our windows or big dogs or carried weapons or uh, all of the above. And the subways and the bridges and the buildings were covered with graffiti. Bil landlords were torching buildings. Air was sooty, garbage piling high. City appeared to be on the verge of crumbling into some kind of hazy, drug-induced or sex-induced oblivion, like the fall of Rome or maybe Berlin before the Nazism, and that's the way we liked it. So uh, in those days, it felt like there was some kind of big party going on that never stopped. Uh, my crowd smoked cigarettes and pot and did LSD and shot heroin. Uh, took diet pills and anything else we could get our hands on. Uh, we socialized and, and drank and danced in smoky clubs and played in rock bands and gave poetry readings, made grotesque paintings and sculptures and performed in art pieces and were homemade intellectuals who devoured uh, anything that was French in translation. Uh, <laughs> Roland Barthes, Michel Foucault, Jacques Derrida, Louis Althusser, uh, and anything that was left-wing or feminist or critical. Uh, you didn't have to work very hard. You could always get uh, uh, some kind of unemployment uh, uh, compensation or uh, failing that. Uh, you could claim mental or physical disability, get SSI. Crappy jobs and cheap eats were plentiful. Uh, there were no homeless people in New York because no matter how big a loser you were, even if you were evicted, there was always another dump you could rent for next to nothing. Well, then sometime in the 1970s and more in the 80s, the world pivoted. Rents started to skyrocket. Jobs became hard to find. Homeless people camped out on the street corners and subway platforms and parks. Inconceivably, Ronald Reagan got elected president. Uh, and a mystery plague came among us, which was called eventually came to be called AIDS, swept away poets and artists and designers and producers and Haitians, hemophiliacs, IV users, and gay people, and people of every sort. Uh, should remind everyone here, you didn't have to be an artist or a homosexual to get AIDS. My Aunt Janice, who was the youngest of six sisters, uh, 
my mother's best friend, a warm and gentle soul, got caught. Uh, she was in her 50s, a mother of three, had undergone a difficult surgical operation in a New York hospital, had uh, over, I think she had five blood transfusions during and after the operation, uh, which saved her life, but the blood was contaminated. And my sweet aunt, who'd always been plump and kind and uh, full of life, wasted away, uh, weakened, shriveled up and died, and all of that was unbearably sad. And AIDS was a revelation. Uh, as Aunt Janice lay on her sickbed, the flesh fell away uh, like leaves from a tree, and what was left was a skeleton covered with flesh, the residue of a person almost overnight, as uh, she seemed to turn into something that resembled uh, her aged and shrunken immigrant mother, my grandmother. And so what had seemed to be a kind of unbridgeable gap between the modern American uh, daughter and the Eastern European bubby, you know, modernity and history collapsed. And, uh, and then there were other revelations. Some friends and members of the family got uh, caught up in the panic and the prejudice and hysteria and refused to visit her. Uh, so the disease cruelly revealed all kinds of hidden truths and people were outed and outed themselves in all sorts of ways. And the world was outed because uh, despite the romance of decay and dissipation before AIDS, we were in some way afflicted by some kind of naive optimism and somehow we kept the faith that progress was rolling in and the world was automatically becoming a better place and that we could achieve and would achieve some kind of liberation in our uh, personal lives and in our uh, erotic lives and, uh, and also in our politics and society and world and, in, uh, and also in the world of science and that all of this would happen and then AIDS came and uh, brought us short. So uh, I've been listening to all of the speakers speak to the, and heard brilliant words about atheistic air and dirt and vanishing points and magnetic Thorazine and love among the lepers and cellular losses and husks and remnants and slag. And uh, I'm thinking about this kind of lost generation of people whose voices we can still hear in this, in this poetry and, and in the memories of them and echoes. And originally when I came to the panel, I was thought I would maybe talk about some of the poets and, and artists that I'd known, some of whom were in the anthology, uh, Cookie Mueller and Joe Brainerd and uh, uh, other people who I maybe had slim associations with or piled around in a party or smoked a joint with or, but, uh, I'm just thinking that, uh, you know, the wheel has turned, and uh, here we are, and uh, I don't really know exactly what to say about what happened, but uh, I'm, it's really lovely to think about and reflect and sad and beautiful at the same time about those people, and uh, I'm glad to be here with all of you.
We wanted to take a few minutes to have a discussion among all of the panelists, the poets, uh, Mike and, and Dr. Martins, uh, about AIDS and culture and about the effect of AIDS on culture. I'm actually going to I'm actually going to take us uh, take us sort of up to the present day for a second, and we can, can move backwards. Um, I'm going to read a, a quick quote from one of the poets who's in the book, uh, Paul Monette, uh, who was better known as a fiction writer, or nonfiction writer rather. Uh, his uh, memoir, Becoming a Man, uh, won the National Book Award. Um, I wanted to read a quote from him from the early 1990s uh, when he said. When I read a book and there is no AIDS in it at all, it's just amazing to me because AIDS is all around me. I've known hundreds of people who've died of AIDS, and that's not even including all the people who have come to me because of reading my books and all their losses. Not mentioning AIDS would be like trying to write a novel that takes place in the mid-1940s and not mentioning the war. Um, as Dr. Martins mentioned, um, now, we're in a different time than when Paul Monette said those words. Uh, updated with, um, uh, again, um, medical, uh, if not solutions, at least ways of making AIDS more livable. Um, people are living longer. Dr. Martins even said he's not exactly sure how uh, to do HIV prevention when, when people see all around them these images of, of people living longer. Um, and I'm curious to ask the panelists, is AIDS art still relevant? Is writing about AIDS still relevant? Is reading uh, you know, the, the words of people who are experiencing that crisis still relevant in the present day with all these medical advances that we've had? I wanted to tie into that, but I also want to ask you a question I think the audience might be interested in. And that's the actual production of this book. Because I was wondering in terms of what I saw with a number of people who were battling AIDS, especially in the last days, um, their relationship with their family that someone would say, okay, they, they died of such and such, but didn't want to say they died of AIDS. And I was wondering now, when you went back and, and deal with some of these estates, did you encounter people who perhaps said, okay, I don't mind you, you know, reprinting the work, but I'm concerned about how you're, you know, conceptualizing the book that they're in, that, you know, the writer's lost to AIDS. I'm just dealing with that as an issue. Fortunately, I didn't actually have to deal with very much of that. Uh, most of the people who I contacted, whether they were lovers, friends, family members of the deceased, most were extremely willing to have uh, their friends and loved ones included uh, in the book. Um, there were a couple of instances. Um, for example, James Merrill, who's probably, as a poet, the best-known poet uh, in the book, uh, for years after he died, um, the estate would not say that it was from AIDS. Uh, it was fairly explicit that he was gay, but they would not state that, that the death was from AIDS due to, I believe, concerns on the part of his mother. Um, and we did, have one, uh, we did have one set of executors say, I don't understand why you're doing this anthology. I don't understand what the, this seems like a really slim connecting thread, so we're just going to create an anthology of all the people who have died of something. Why does that matter, or what's the relevance? So a couple of instances, but not, not too frequently. I guess we've talked about this kind of thing uh, before. There is a field called AIDS literature, and there's a tendency to, uh, you know, talk even of, I mean, I've used the phrase the golden age of AIDS, and, uh, and a period during which uh, a lot of other cultural things came together, some of which you've gotten mentioned, that characterized a particular time. But, of course, we all have this fear that when you do that, you say that the AIDS crisis is over and that it's something historical, and that's very scary for people like me to hear people talking that way. I remember, you know, just talking of 
some of the stuff that's come up, uh, living in that sort of ghettoized uh, thing where I was a volunteer at the clinic at which Dr. Martin's works for about 10 years. And when I wasn't at my job, I was off, you know, working in that clinic or I was taking care of friends or whatever. And then I'd go to my job and I was in an environment in which HIV was just completely foreign. And I had students who were running around having sex and had no idea, I mean, really seriously, no idea about HIV prevention or that there were people that they knew that were sick or that there were people in my school who were HIV positive and dealing with it. And so it, it got associated with that particular time and that atmosphere for me as it did for a lot of other people. But what ends up happening finally, don't you think, is that it passes into the general concerns of art, of illness, of mortality, of alienation, which is often the experience of, in Tim's work and many other people's, of a sense of transcendence of the individual body with whatever way you find of achieving that transcendence. I should mention that towards the end of his life, Tim was studying to become, uh, is it called an Episcopal priest or Episcopalian? Episcopal priest. And uh, he had turned away from the Catholic Church for reasons which I think are in the news a fair amount these days, uh, among others. And, uh, you know, he had, he had found a way to accommodate a traditional set of beliefs with what had always been going on in his poetry, which was a connection to a larger tradition. So if AIDS art does that, that's one form of it. I don't know if we talk about tuberculosis art in the 19th century or, you know, anything. Michael is probably the expert on this. Anything else associated with a particular epidemic. But it, it is the way that there is something still called AIDS art and that that AIDS art is still especially relevant. What about the, the impact on the genre where you see some of the poets moving from writing poetry into writing their memoirs? In, in Absolutely. Terms of, because that's another thing which was keeping uh, a record of people's lives, lovers, as you sort of switch from writing poetry to writing the memoir, right? I think of Mark Doty and people like that. And HIV AIDS, I think, was a very large impact on that trend in American memoiristic writing to deal with the body, to tell the story of the things that have happened to me and in my illness. And it pushed the envelope, as they say, on a lot of issues like that. I would say that also, I mean, there was a, it came in a particular time and certainly in American life in which was a very, very large, demographically, a very, very large uh, group of 20-something and 30-something people, the baby boom generation. So even, it was, a, it was a time when people were particularly uh, estranged from the notion of mortality. That there was this very large group of people who ran together who were very young and thought they were going to live forever. And all of a sudden uh, this plague, it came it was particularly concentrated, of course, among certain groups, and and certainly in in artist communities and 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 the gay community, which intersected. Uh, it hit particularly hard in, in a moment when people were just kind of going crazy with a kind of emancipatory project of liberating themselves, sexuality politics, um, doing everything that they could possibly do in, in every aspect of life and art. So uh, I think there, it was particularly poignant for people like Tim, and who was sort of had, 
had a, some other kind of unrealistic expectation, but I think more than maybe other generations of people, there was a feeling that we were living in the time of youth and, and, uh, and death was very far away. Isn't it kind of awful to say that it was the end of the 60s, but of course a lot of people have said that. I thought it was very interesting that Michael had said earlier that it was kind of the end of progress. And that was a, I don't know if this seems partisan, it's certainly opinionated, I don't think it's partisan, but it was something about the age of Reagan where people suddenly felt that, oh, what government does is abandon you. I'd, I'd forgotten that. What government does is leave you behind. Uh, what government does is oppose your efforts. And we weren't used to that. We really, you know, were Kennedy children and all that kind of stuff. And now I look at what's going on in the country, and may I just say, <laughs> I'm, I mean, I'm doing my job. I'm going home at the end of the day and cooking a casserole. I'm having a life. But I'm astonished that artists and writers are not mobilizing the entire country to say who the hell thinks we're not supposed to have health care you know like <sighs> I'm, I'm interested to actually hear you say that because uh one of the things that politicized me i mean i grew up after i'm born in 1980 so i grew up when aids was uh, occurring and really ravaging uh communities but it didn't have that kind of um Immediacy. I wasn't watching friends die, but I remember that one of, one of the only books that I could find that mentioned gay people uh, in you know supposedly liberal Arlington County, right across the uh, right across the water. I remember one of the only books that I could find uh, to really mention gay people was Randy Schultz's *In the Band Played On*. And I, I know that there are people who have political problems with Schultz's book and claim that he you know fudged his emphases in order to have a better narrative arc and et cetera, et cetera. But I remember reading this book as a, a young gay kid, 15, 16, and being incredibly politicized by this particular, this particular book about AIDS. So I think that it had um, effects for some people even further down because really uh, in the mid-90s, there was this huge association of, of being gay with having AIDS. And where you heard about gay people a lot in the media was in connection to having AIDS. So for kids my age who are just coming out, that was uh, really sort of on the mind. I just wanted to think about the concepts of art and culture, and I realized how thoughty that seems in comparison to the really urgent stuff of addressing people's medical condition and survival. But, you know, what is, uh, what's meant by culture when we talk about the impact of AIDS on culture and the fact that somehow or other that energy of the 1960s for civil rights and uh, communities trying to work together to, I mean, this all sounds so Wizard of Oz and Munchkin land sometimes, but, uh, you know, communities actually trying to work together to, to ameliorate people's conditions. When you look at the growth of Whitman Walker in the United States or gay men's health crisis in New York, we talk about the terrible, terrible things that happened, but of course these were galvanizing events that changed ideas about community and, and how communities could work together and represent themselves. And, you know, the arts were always intimately involved in that. The people who started Gay Men's Health Crisis were Ed White. I mean, who? Like five writers started Gay Men's Health Crisis, and people expected writers to do that uh, kind of thing. So I guess the vital question still for me is you don't just, you know, talk about stuff. You don't just uh, write 
poems that say, let's find a cure or let's help our brothers and sisters or something like that, that there is some intimate connection between how you write and uh, how art reaches the public and what people expect from art that is culture in the broader sense. So when people make movies, not just the subject matter in the movies, but the way the movies work, the audiences whom the movies reach, it has an enormous uh, impact on how people view uh, the world in which they live, and I often feel we fall down on that a lot these days. Really, really a lot. You know, I, I spent some time a few months ago um, talking to the scholar and actress Martin Duberman, whose next book is focusing on um, gay activists, and one of the people that's in your anthology that he's looking at, he's doing a chapter on Essex Hemphill, um, you know, who was very active in terms of as a writer, also his work was made in films and things of that sort. But I think what you find is that it's a need in terms of, you know, the next generation making sure that they remain active. Uh, I think what happens now is that we look at this as much more difficult to sustain a social movement, you know, in terms of, of, of the media in terms of attacking. In fact, I find it interesting that you can develop a social movement easier if you're on the right than if you're on the left. Yeah. You put, you know, like, for example, this we, this is, if, if we had a camera right here and we were tea parties, we would be changing the next election. <laughs> you know, I mean, just this many people right now would, would change the national election. Uh, and, and, and I find it amazing. And, and I say that because when you look at certain communities, whether it's AIDS or whether it's, 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 it's issues in terms of the African-American community, what you'll find is that, you know, we're always trying to get that message out. But now today, I think with what we see, it's easy to get the message out, but it's also easy to manipulate the message. Uh, you know, um, I, and that's the thing I'm concerned about now in terms of how these books reach new communities. You know, does this book uh, wind up on the curriculum? Okay, uh, I noticed, for example, in the last several years on the campus of Howard University. Okay, this has a lot to do with changing demographics. More gay African American men uh, arriving on the campus of Howard University and having a community. You know, I remember, for example, every now and then someone would come up to my office and they were just isolated. They were isolated when they were in high school. Now they were on a historically black college campus, and they didn't have the support group like they may have had on a white campus. And, and so you see that change. Now, whether a book like this will, will, will make it you know, into a course toward Ohio University would be very, very interesting. Same way you talked about the Whitman Court community, where you see groups working together. I wonder whether that will happen at a school like Howard University, where we're changing, hopefully, the minds of a new generation in terms of leaders that they are dealing with these issues. You know, I still look at the fact that we went through a complete discussion on health care over the last several months, and I really can't place a black face, national image, with health care, other than maybe Obama. <laughs> and, and that shows you that there's, there's a lot of work that, that needs to be done. And then the other thing I think with, with struggle is that struggle doesn't go away. You're right, you know, we see Magic Johnson, and he looks healthy. And I remember someone said that, you know, we embrace Magic Johnson now. But what will happen when he begins to actually show the physical changes of the illness? Okay? Will we still embrace him? Okay? And I think that he's still a picture boy. You see? And, 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 and you know, he might as well be like Lady Gaga. You know, you know? Uh, and, and that's the thing, that if he was to change physically, he would be educating us in such a way that perhaps we would not want to be educated that way. And I just wonder about that as a thing in terms of our society. Is it one thing about um, 
like uh, social movements that I feel like uh, is still strong and doing well in the medical community was in the 60s and 70s when the idea of community health centers came out with the idea of you can have these centers for primary care or medical homes that will serve the majority of the community that's not going to private practices or universities. And um, it was like this kind of like lofty idea and what's actually what's one of the, to me, one of the issues with our current kind of the way health is, is done here in the United States is our safety net right now is our hospitals and emergency rooms. Well, as a society, that's a very expensive safety net. Um, but through the healthcare reform, they're actually going to be opening up a lot more community health centers, which all started out of this movement in the 70s. So it's wondering, even though kind of it starts and stops, even with the new healthcare reform, you see kind of movements that you didn't think were going to continue um, becoming more prevalent. And I, there is an analogy in the arts. You know, there really is that, that do-it-yourself, under-the-radar work that gets done in the arts, local organizing local uh, communities, seems to create a lot more cultural energy than... I mean, there's wonderful TV series that I watch that tell you what really happened in New Orleans, and, you know, I'm glad they exist and everything, but it comes down to people on the local level getting something together. Well, before we... Before the session began, when we were outside uh, hanging out, we were talking about the ways in which uh, AIDS resulted in a grassroots mobilization, of course, that really had a big impact, ACT UP and other groups that really changed things. And, and uh, at a grassroots level, people felt that they weren't being heard, and, and they made posters, and they organized uh, concerts and events and sit-ins, and and actions uh, that uh, it was very actually effective mobilization and uh, of course there are certain people uh, like Magic Johnson identified with AIDS but the issue then is, is how to connect it up with a kind of broader based movement because as we heard community based health clinics and, and health uh, uh, universal health care are all part and parcel of how we deal with death and mortality and plagues like AIDS and other things. So um, the issue then becomes sort of how we can connect these kind of single issue mobilizations to a, a kind of broader social cultural vision uh, where people can come together. And that's one thing that uh, I'm just this is really a response to what Bernie said uh, that uh, I think has been lacking in the past you know, few years where a lot of people mobilize for single issue um, uh, causes but without uh, kind of connecting the dots and saying, well, what kind of society do you want to live in? Let's um, come together for the broader change. I think you know personally that we've mo we've divided into a lot of oppositions that don't have to exist, and we will find a way to get over some of those oppositions so that people who disagree with each other are not looking at each other with contempt or assuming that there's no way that they can finally meet. And what usually makes that happen is a crisis when you know the the mother in uh, Iowa who doesn't know her son is gay and finds out that he has HIV and decides to rally and help out and then her friends mobilize, et cetera. That's what happens. We may need just crises like that to come along, which is why I don't always think um, 
mortality and crisis and illness is such a terrible thing. Certainly, even within the within the GLBT community, I mean, many many lesbians stepped up to participate in the healthcare system and to help their brothers who were ill and were dying with the disease. So it actually helped create some bridges there that had not necessarily existed prior. Yes, would you mind uh, <laughs> heading over to the uh, mic? Thank you. I'm a representative from GMHC. Um, I worked there from 1982 to 1984 at the height of the beginning of the epidemic. And um, I'm back there now. And I wanted to just tell everybody what an important book this is. We're approaching the 30th anniversary of the epidemic. It will, um, I think June of, of uh, 2011, we will be uh, having the actual uh, anniversary of the first publication in a CDC report. And then the first uh, write-up in the New York Times was in uh, July 3rd of, of 1981. And um, what I wanted to say, a couple things, is basically, number one, this is a very important book because I think it reminds people that the epidemic is not over. Two, I want to just state one of the things that um, I think, Doctor, you talked about in terms of, of um, reaching a new generation and some of the social marketing that I'm sure is being done at Walt, uh, Whitman Walker and what's being done at GMHC to reach uh, young men and women who are experimenting and coming out and some of the social marketing that's impacting them and giving them role models uh, to realize that as you said doctor uh, from uh, uh, and I'm sorry I don't remember your name from Howard University that men are, uh, that people are being able to identify as being gay or lesbian much earlier on. And so those are some of the benefits that I think, and, and the whole healthcare issues and AIDS walks and breast cancer walks and all of the things that have come out of that. Um, and thirdly, I just want to state that this book is important because we can't allow revisionism to take place. Uh, about what's going on in the AIDS epidemic now and make sure that people realize that the epidemic is still out there and it's impacting the community and rates are rising and we have to s somehow intervene and keep people from becoming infected. Certainly when I started the project in 2005, I didn't think that there would be anybody else joining the roles, anybody else who would be uh, dying of AIDS and, and then being included in the project. And instead what happened was four different people, uh, Tori Dent, Reginald Shepard, uh, Richard George Murray uh, passed away, uh, Thomas Avena, it just continued to happen, continued to occur. Um, so four, four of the people in Persistent Voices died since the beginning of uh, creating the book just four years ago, it's not over. Uh, people who've been living with it long term or people who are you know, just getting it now, it's a 
huge fact of life for, for many, many people. should also add that, I mean, of course, the focus of this panel and this book has been the United States, but in the world at large, uh, of course, AIDS is an e epidemic and is also endemic and continuing, and many, many, many people uh, are dying and the, the disease is spreading, and people who are do not have access to any kind of uh, treatment or therapy or adequate medical care, and uh, so we shouldn't forget them either. And it was very difficult or impossible to get uh, poetry, to uh, be able to include poetry by uh, writers from African countries, for example, or certainly the epidemic is ravaging a number of countries in Africa, yet somehow either the artists who have AIDS are not being identified, they aren't being translated, what they have to say about their experience is not reaching the United States. Still a terrible stigma. I mean, I, t I talked a little bit about my Aunt Janice and other people who uh, people would shun when they found out they had AIDS, and that's still occurring. It occurs in our society, but it occurs in, to a much greater degree in places like Africa and Asia. What's, what's interesting is kind of put um, HIV in the district in perspective to the rest of the world or the rest of the country. So the World Health Organization um, um, identifies an HIV epidemic as gr when greater than 1% of the population has HIV. And to the last Department of Health numbers, it was 3.2% of the district population. And if you actually um, look at the whole of Sub-Saharan Africa, we actually have a greater rate than the whole of Sub-Saharan Africa does here in the district. If you look at, there's individual countries within Sub-Saharan Africa that have un ungodly high rates, like 30%. Um, but there, I mean, it's, it's crazy right here in the district. It's probably like one of the worst places you'll find in, in this hemisphere. Thank you very much again to the National Academy of Sciences, to JD and Alana for all of their help. Uh, and thank you very much to all of you for coming out uh, after a long day of work for many people uh, to hear some of the poems from Persistent Voices and, and to hear what our panelists had to uh, say about their experience.